I'm Ryan Miller, Crops Extension Educator. Earlier this morning, we recorded an episode of the Strategic Farming Field Notes program. Strategic Farming Field Notes is a weekly program addressing current crop production topics. A live webinar is hosted at 8 a.m. on Wednesdays throughout the cropping season. During the live webinar, participants can join in the discussion and get questions answered. An audio recording of the live program is released following the webinar via podcast platforms. Thanks, and remember to tune in weekly for a discussion on current cropping and crop management topics. Good morning, everyone. Uh, we're glad you could join us for today's session on strategic farming field notes. And today we'll be covering late summer forage and small grains outlook, especially as we wrap up the season. And I should mention that this will hopefully be our last episode of the season, barring any major events, whether we have an early frost or a major storm coming through, we might try to jump in with an extra episode possibly, but otherwise we're ready to hand off the season and see how things turn out as we get into winter there. So these sessions are brought to you by University of Minnesota Extension, as well as generous support from Minnesota Soybean Research Promotion Council, as well as the Minnesota Corn Growers Research Promotion Council. I'm Anthony Hansen, Regional Extension Educator and integrated pest management with the crops team. And also moderating, we have one of our newer regional educators, Nathan Bruitz, who I will hand it off to in just a little bit here. So we want to welcome two speakers today. One is Craig Schaefer, our extension forage specialist, and then Joachim Wiersma, our small grains extension specialist. So just a few housekeeping notes before we get started. These sessions are meant in more of a discussion format, so we do have an opportunity for you to ask questions during, and some people have been able to uh, bring in questions beforehand too. So we will have some time at the beginning of the session for information pre or presented by our speakers, and then we'll open things up for questions as we go along too. But if you have any questions, please go to the bottom of your screen and use the Q&A box to enter those. If you're not familiar with Zoom, just hover your mouse near the bottom of the screen and you should get a toolbar to appear. Now there also is a chat box. We're gonna save that for if you have technical issues or questions about the Zoom session itself. But if you have questions about content, please use the Q&A box instead. Also, there will be a very short four question survey at the very end of this webinar. So please take the time to fill that out when we uh, conclude the webinar. That will be happen once you click leave. And that lets us know how we're doing for these sessions and how to plan for next season as well. Each session is being recorded, will be posted as a podcast for the next day or so. And with that, I'll turn it over to Nathan Druitz to uh, kind of cover our topics about forages and what's happening in that world. Thank you, Anthony. And so with us today, we have Dr. Craig Schaefer. Uh, we're going to start off by talking about forages. And so uh, he is our, of course, our forage extension specialist here for the university. And uh, so we're going to start with Craig. And you know, how are, how, I guess, can you, let's start by having you provide us with a short update on how forages look throughout the state. Well, I, I think there's, um, as typical, uh, typical of the case variability, but uh, with these rainfalls, we patterns we have right now, um, the regrowth really looks pretty good going into the fall. In fact, going into a another cut, which should be occurred by early September. So um, 
I, I think there's other issues we should talk about that, such as fall cutting, but also the last time of fall seeding or summer seeding. Yeah, and I, and I would agree with you. So can you cover a little bit in terms of what we're looking for overwintering or for overwintering alfalfa and what we need to be focused on uh, there? Well, this, this question comes up every year. And um, I several years ago, I came to the conclusion that there are a lot of factors influencing, the, you know, whether you should cut in the fall, get ready for the terms of the winter. And the least risk, of course, is not to cut after September 1st or early September, say the first week of September in Southern Minnesota. Um, however, producers might need that forage. And if they do, then a cut um, that is delayed until October 15th to the first part of November would be the safest. Um, and uh, if possible, leave a little more stubble. And um, if, if it is a normal winter with snow cover, um, there shouldn't be any deleterious effect of, of that cutting uh, in October. Uh, as we all know too, from going out, and I was harvesting some alfalfa yesterday, you go out and you go in the field and there's dew. There's a pretty heavy dew uh, coming now, coming on now. Um, and um, it's there till like 10, 11 o'clock. So it's something else we have to deal with and that is drying in the fall of the year. So any of these <clears throat> approaches other than making dry hay to get the field hay off the field quicker would be something that needs to be considered. Well, and you touched on it. How do we reduce these, the risk to potential, you know, in these cases, how, if we're looking at cut, taking those, taking those final cuttings in October, November, or even here starting part of first part of September, what do we need to focus on to ensure that we're reducing that risk? You know, I didn't quite hear the first part of your question or your statement, Nathan. So when it when it comes to reducing risk, how do we reduce risks of potentially causing harm to that stand uh, early on in the season, later on in the season here, especially as we get into September and October and November? How do we ensure that we're reducing that risk? What are some things we need to be looking for uh, so that we can time that last, that final cutting if we need it appropriately? Yeah, so um, we, we, we have to recognize a little bit about the physiology of the plant in relation to this cutting, this issue of fall cutting. What you want to do is cut it at a time that's not going to have much significant regrowth. Um, so if that happens in September, that last cut comes in the middle of September, it's going to have a significant amount of regrowth. And that's going to come at the expense of root carbohydrates and also nitrogen reserves so that that plant physiologically, let's just say health-wise, is not going to be in good, good shape uh, going into the winter. Uh, if you do cut later and it doesn't regrow, the danger there is you're removing cover that would have caught snow and would have insulated the soil surface from freezing and thawing. So, the, the risk factor is cutting. You've got a perennial you want to, want to survive. You also know that older stands may be more susceptible than younger stands. So that should be a factor. 
so fertility is certainly a factor. Uh, we know that lower levels of, of fertility, and uh, I go back to the University of Minnesota guidelines for fertility, and I'm particularly talking about potassium here, lower levels um, beyond those are no recommended for, for good levels of production, whatever the cause of those, probably gonna have a little more winter stress than if you have the recommended levels. So Craig, uh, I can have almost an opposite question for you. And this has a little bit more to do with what happened last year in some fields. We had an extended growing season instead, and we'll see if that happens again this year, if it's a lot shorter. Can you get issues with alfalfa when you have, say, too much cover in winter? That may have um, you know, helped us out with survival, but are there any downsides to that aside from um, if someone was wanting to get an extra crop, you're missing out on that. But um, yeah, if we have a long growing season, what might happen there potentially? Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, that's a great question, Anthony. And I think all of us who work with alfalfa have observed the effect of climate change and how that has affected uh, the winters. So we know our lows are not as low. And you can always tell your kids how cold it was when you, you waited at the bus stop. Now it's warm, you know. Um, it's a benefit from it, but it's good for alfalfa. So we're not hitting those lows. Um, and the season is extending later. Now, is there a problem with that? Um, we used to think, or people used to talk about the fact that if you let all that residue on there, it was going to smother the regrowth. Well, when you have all that residue on there and you have the cold, frosty weather, all the leaves frost fall to the ground. So you have that residue there, which really will not smother any plants, but it is effective in catching snow. One consideration though is the following spring. If you have a lot of residue on the field and it's in that first cut, a lot of times it decays and it's not standing upright, can lower the quality of that first cut, hey, some. Um, but usually that yield of, of fresh material is so high if it's harvested at a bud stage, it's not a, an issue. So in, I gave you more information than you wanted, but no, Anthony, you can leave it on the field if you want. Well, that's good to know. I guess, you know, next question here deals with corn silage, actually. Uh, you know, we're looking at corn silage here heading into the year. A lot of those areas that have uh, that have dealt with the drought are, are areas where we deal with a lot with corn silage. What are concerns uh, as we head into harvest of that? You know, I, I've got rumors of, of corn silage harvest starting as early as the first full week of September right now due to some of these drought, considera or drought concerns. Uh, what are we looking at for that? Well, I'm, I'm probably not the best person to address this issue. Um, haven't worked for corn silage in a while. Um, we could talk about general considerations and, and the, one of the key ones is this issue of moisture and having the right uh, storage for the moisture content. If you go too dry, you don't get good, good in silage. If it's too wet, there can be issues as well. Now, we do know that if there are issues with grain fill, 
then um, we will likely have less carbohydrates, less desirable fermentation, and inoculants in that kind of environments, or even sometimes additives have some benefit. But um, I don't know, Nathan, if you wanna add anything to that or Joachim uh, about the corn silage. Not, not really. I, I, I guess there are some, there are some, uh, if one would go online and we can certainly uh, search those up, we could put, put information about how to handle drought stress corn silage and put it up on online for people to see. I should mention too that, uh, you know, last year we covered that topic quite a bit dealing with, you know, obviously a lot of drought then. And uh, in some cases, corn silage where people weren't normally trying to take silage out of it. So we do have some resources on that from last year that if people are in a heavy drought area that they could use those resources again. Um, so that's something to potentially look up on the extension website there. Um, Nathan, I think, did we have any other questions that came in on forages uh, or cover crops here? Yeah, we just do have one here, which is concerns. Yeah, you know, what is our concern for nitrates and drought stress corn silage? Uh, Craig, you know, how do we deal with nitrates? I mean, yeah, you know, and, and this might be even a question uh, for Yoakum as well because we do have some small grains that are going to be utilized uh, for for silage purposes, for forage purposes. How do we deal with nitrates in these systems and are we concerned about them? So um, I don't know, Yoakum, do you want to say anything about that? Or do you want me to? N nothing when it comes to corn. I stayed a heck away from corn. Well, again, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't uh, researched this topic lately. Um, uh, I wish I had this, you know, comment about um, question in advance. But so let's talk about nitrates. So you know, nitrates are harmful because for livestock, also for people, because they affect blood hemoglobin. Um, and I, I would say that uh, I think it's important that one test the forage for nitrate levels. Now, so you make, if you make silage out of it, uh, out of the, out of um, uh, drought stressed corn, where, where the nitrates perhaps accumulated in the corn stalks, um, uh, I don't recall whether those levels are decreased or whether they stay the same. In other words, whether there's a transformation in the silage. But that's a question we, we need to we would need to resolve or look it up. Now, I, I, is that yeah? I guess we have, do have a quick comment. Um, Ryan Miller, one of our other educators, he's mentioning that uh, with corn nitrates, they accumulate more uh, kind of at the bottom of the stock. So you need to cut a bit higher if nitrates are an issue potentially. So uh, yeah, one, one of the benefits of having some of our other educators listening in here is we do have a few more people in the background that folks maybe don't see all the time. Um, I think with that, Nathan or Craig, if you have any last things you want to mention, we might move over to uh, small grains here. Okay, well, I'll chime in on the, if you want to chop cereals for silage late. Uh, generally, nitrates are less of a concern, uh, in part because you don't have that as strong a storage signal or habit as corn does in basal nitrate. 
Um, if it's a cover crop seeded, it's very young. In many cases, it's not mature yet. Uh, so your total amount of biomass and the total amount of nitrate accumulated isn't anywhere close to where nitrate, where corn would be. Uh, safest thing to do uh, is still to do, you know, a, a test of forage, uh, not just for quality, but for nitrates. Because um, depending on what uh, amount of carryover nitrogen was when you established a uh, Established to cover crop, uh, you're going to have a difference in uh, basically protein levels. And so nitrogen. Yeah, thanks, Joachim. So I guess maybe just to kind of get the wider view of things, how especially has the wheat been looking, but overall small grain so far this year as we wrap up? I know you've been pretty busy with harvest. You've been out beforehand looking for different pests, agronomic traits, how things are doing there. We've had our um, scouts out as well, or one scout around the Moorhead area funded by the uh, Minnesota wheat growers and Minnesota soybean growers uh, looking for pests too. And you know, initially it was pretty quiet, but it sounds like you're finding a bit out there now in addition to good yields. Yeah, so I, I kind of made a summary in crop news um, late last week, or in a, I published it Monday. So this is where we're at. Um, the yields are amazingly good. Uh, they, I'm absolutely flabbergasted to hear some of the numbers that are rolling in on the earliest seeded wheat. Now, remember, most of the wheat in northwest Minnesota didn't get seeded until the third week of May. But even those fields, they're starting in the Central Valley because it's a little bit drier around Kirkston. They're into harvesting those last couple of days. And I'm basically off by a, at least a third of the final yields that they're reporting. Um, I'm hearing very consistent yields between 80 to 100 bushels of spring wheat, which given how the summer has went from, you know, late start and a really, in a way, many ways, beautiful June, but then we, in July, when grain fields started, we went to hot and humid weather. Uh, the risk models for scab uh, were pretty hot throughout the grain field period. But what we're seeing is very high, good yields, good quality, in part because it was so dry last year. So we have this extra flush of nitrates coming through uh, mineralization uh, this year. Uh, good quality. There are some concerns uh, on not because of scab, but we're seeing some black point and we're seeing some ergot. Now, ergot generally doesn't have a chance unless you had some sterility in wheat and barley. It's, it's much more common in rye because rye is a cross-pollinator. The ergot fungus, uh, Claviceps purpurae, doesn't have a chance to infect basically uh, the style and of the style and sigma and the ovary, unless it doesn't get pollinated. So, heat generally causes can can cause some sterility. That in itself then results in male sterility. Then it the florets open up. That's when you have a chance of ergot infections. We're seeing ergot 
which tells you a little bit about what the conditions were right around grain fill in the beginning of grain fill. Ergot is a, you know, a food safety issue and a feed safety issue. It's been part of the grain grading standards for eons. Um, if you see ergot, you'll see probably most likely it to be the worst around edges of field because that's where other hosts are. Gra most grasses are hosts to ergot. Harvest it separately or let that part of the field stand because ergot bodies will eventually drop to the soil. And then harvest the rest of the field so that you can stay below the threshold uh, for grading, which is roughly one ergot body per 2,000 kernels. It doesn't take much to get into trouble. Um, there is some black point out there. And again, that points to hot and humid conditions because the fungi that cause that, Alternaria, Aspergillus, uh, really like humid conditions uh, to get going. Um, we, we're starting now in a cycle where we have off and on showers uh little thunder shower pop-ups that means that those fungi will continue if it's in there in those fields um and we're probably going to harvest some of this grain a little bit wetter than most years uh, because time is not on our hand um that means you want to dry down this grain as quickly as possible um Ideally, you want to get it, if you get it at 16, you want to get it down to that 13 and 14% as quick as possible. If the weather doesn't allow for that, use a little bit of supplemental heat uh, to help bring that uh, grain down. Normally, we don't talk about supplemental heat and uh, drying of grain, small grains. But in this case, because we have basically a fungus that can continue until you get it dry enough, uh, we might want to consider that. Now, the two surprises that are currently going on is um, we know we've had some wheat stems off light through the region. Um, that ink stain, if you want to call it that, has been expanding. Uh, I, I can, I've had reports as far north now as the Canadian border. It's still mostly a nuisance issue. It's not really an economic issue. Uh, but if growers bump into it, I'd like to hear about it. But the big surprise uh, this year uh, that I'm getting reports of is hessian fly. Now, hessian fly is an insect. It's an introduced pest. Um, and it really is a non-issue in Minnesota. Why? Because our winter wheat acreage is too small. It really needs a host to survive the winter and its life cycle. And it just isn't enough winter wheat acres. Now, why am I getting reports from Hessian fly from basically in the central, in the heart of the valley right now, uh, from basically Halstead to Twin Valley, all the way up to Crookston at levels that I have never seen in my career? Um, there's two possible scenarios. Uh, one is we've had two dry falls and growers let their volunteer wheat go long enough and didn't necessarily use tillage last fall to destroy those volunteer stands. Some of our spring wheats have enough winter hardiness 
that they actually make it through the through the, the next spring. That is a way for um, Hessian fly the pupae to get through the winter. The second one is something that um, people might not want to hear. Um, cover crops, rye, because that's the darling of the cover crop industry, um, is a host to Hessian fly. And people have a tendency or a desire to plant cover crops early and plant the rye early to get as much biomass going into the winter as possible. Rye will survive the winter in Minnesota, period. I, I, I cannot kill winter rye if I tried. It can drown out, but I can't winter kill it. If we indeed are gonna have cover crops across the landscape, we're gonna have to manage that in such a way that Hessian fly doesn't have a chance. That means we have to look at the old literature uh, and extrapolate basically what is a common practice across the rest of the US where winter wheat is raised. And that is don't plant before the fly-free date. Um, there's fly-free date for Hessian fly pretty much at any latitude. Um, and that work is, is very old, but very robust and it works. For Northwest Minnesota, it means do not establish probably your cover crop rye before September 10th to 15th, seventh, somewhere in that week. Um, Southern men, not basically before, uh, I believe it's the third week of September. So uh, we I have, have uh, quite a few questions coming in for you now. So I'm gonna try to get fit a couple of those in here. Uh, first one I have is when you mentioned winter wheat, how is that doing in the state, either northern part of the state or south, in terms of um, compared to spring wheat and how people are managing that? Okay, so um, winter wheat tends to, should have about a 20% yield advantage over spring wheat in the same region in the same year. Why? Because it takes advantage of basically cooler conditions during grain fill. Um, that doesn't always pan out because weather around Minnesota, I was told when I got off the plane umpteen years ago, wait five minutes and it will change. But on average, which, you know, it's kind of a funny statement when you talk about weather in Minnesota, um, winter wheat does have a yield advantage. Now, can you get it through the winter? No-till um, is the preferred route. There's very few kind of good options for no-till winter wheat. Uh, soybeans is probably the easiest, but, and in, and it's the same for winter rye. Um, I think we can make that work pretty consistently. Up north in Northwest Minnesota, so Lake of the Woods County, Kitson County, um, winter wheat gets often seeded in canola stubble, standing stubble, and that works very well as well. Um, Winter wheat is not, is insured as spring wheat in Minnesota. Uh, so there's not a separate policy with RMA for winter wheat in Minnesota that is likely to continue because I've had conversations with RMA that because the acreage is too small, don't, they don't have to parse the acreage out 
uh, and have a separate RMA policy for winter wheat. So for now, that means that you seed your winter wheat and when it stand comes through, it's insured as spring wheat. All right, uh, next question for you, Joachim, is asking about Fusarium head blight and especially preventing dawn. Um, now, how do we do this year for Fusarium head blight issues? So, and what do, you, so, what do you see out there? So Andrew Friskup is the extension plant pathologist at North Dakota State. And Andrew and I are on the phone pretty regularly in part because we are on exam committees for a couple of grad students together. Um, both of us were really nervous. The models hadn't started trending up for risk of fusarium head blight. When both of us, and this was right around the 4th of July, went like, eh, it, it doesn't feel right. Um, and you can't necessarily put your finger on it, but it's the little guy on your shoulder going, yeah, this isn't this isn't going good. Um, the risk models were high throughout much of the beginning of the grain field period for most of the acres. Uh, they stayed high, relatively high, even for the later planted stuff. When I'm walking fields right now, I am pleasantly surprised uh, by the amount of scabby kernels that I can find. I can find it, but they're there's relatively few and the infections indeed occurred early that these are the very small what we call tombstone kernels and those tombstone kernels are white and chalky and very small and you can manage that during harvest with your air on the combine there is no reason to really see a lot of this end up in the tank and that's a good thing um the, the I talked about black point already. Well, black point, those are fully formed kernels uh, where you see indeed the tip on the germ side turning this black color. Those are fully fo formed kernels and those you will not blow over the back of the combine. So I think we can manage Don uh, this year very well. There is, there is scab out there, but I overall, I think the levels are less than I had feared, and that's a good thing. Um, I, yeah, it, 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 I'm in many ways pleasantly surprised. Oh, the other little surprise is orange wheat blossom midge, but that's something that I'll talk to growers in Northwest Minnesota about over the winter. One last quick question for you, Joachim. Um, we're having questions about basically mixing, or when you apply herbicides, uh, mixing a fungicide in there. And this question was, I think, uh, related to top guard, applying that with herbicides. Um, in general, uh, just kind of quick answer in that one, can I, what's the stance on mixing for uh, small grains production when it comes to herbicides and fungicides? Okay. Um, early season tank mixing of herbicides and fungicides, very doable. Um, sometimes people want to add a insecticide with that too. With a couple of our AIs that are contact herbicides, that gets to be a little hot because most formulations of herbicide and fungicides are emulsified concentrates, ECs. Basically, you're adding more crop oil to the tank and as uh, our surfactant, if you want to talk, call it that. That means that the contact herbicides get a little hotter. So most of that damage is transitional. 
And just so go fishing for a couple of days. Don't look at the field. Um, now, there's two questions that I see in the Q&A. One is about world wheat production. And the other one is about liquid, liquid manure and establishing cover crops in time. Uh, world wheat production. Uh, I have no idea. I haven't listened to Frayne Olson lately. Um, but if the futures market are any indication, there is plenty of wheat out there because the futures have been going down um, last I checked. And, that, uh, and as far as the, the cover crop timing and manure, yeah, that's one of the challenges. Um, we're going to have to do some thinking on how to manage that and stick with the mandates that FSA and NRCS have uh, about establishing cover crops if it's prevent plant. Uh, I had a conversation yesterday with one individual from MDA about, okay, how do we manage all these competing interests? Uh, we have to have some serious conversations about this um, if we want to make indeed cover crops part of the landscape permanently and managing, because I don't need to have an introduced pest uh, wreak havoc on the crop that we actually want to harvest. Well, thanks, Joachim. And on the topic of cover crops, I do want to mention that uh, our newest regional educator, Nathan Druitz, his uh, specialties, especially in forages and in cover crops. So he is a person to contact if you do have questions about that. And we did have quite a few questions we couldn't quite get to that dealt with that area too. So Nathan, I'll pass that one off to you for after the session if people want to talk to you a bit more. But with that, I would like to thank everyone for a successful uh, summer for uh, Field Notes. This has been a couple of years we've been working on these programs between Field Notes and uh, Let's Talk Crops. So it's something we'd like to provide throughout the year. And you know, basically all you listeners make us successful when we have questions coming in. So we want to thank all of you for that. And I think we can wrap up. Nathan, do you have anything else you want to quickly add before we check out here? Nope. Okay. 